Well, good evening again. Um, it's great. Um, one of the things I love to do, I've got um, three kids. My kids are 15, uh, 13, 11 years old. And one of the things we love to do as a family is we love to sit around our big TV at home and we love to watch YouTube videos together. Um, you know, all those great videos that are out there, things like um, the best movies of all time or maybe the top ten hits of the 1980s, which I find my kids are creepily into. Um, I'm not so much at that stage. Um, things like stars that you didn't know were dead, those sorts of um, videos. Um, but one of the things that we also love is movie quotes. So I thought we might start this morning with just a bit of a quiz to test uh, how your knowledge of movie quotes is. So I'm going to yell out a movie quote and I want you to just yell out what movie it's from. They're pretty simple. So uh, may the force be with you. Star Wars. Star Wars. Of course. Um, what about uh, life is like a box of chocolates? You never... Oh, gosh, I don't even need to finish with you guys. Uh, how about um, To Infinity and Beyond? Toy Story. See, you guys are so good. Um, what about I'm the King of the World? Titanic. Gosh, you're just brilliant. Um, you see, the thing about movie quotes um, is that we actually only need to hear one line. You guys don't even need to hear the whole line before all the images, the story and all the emotions that come with that movie actually fill our minds, do we? You're probably still thinking about one of those movies now. Um, but that's because movies these days really form part of our cultural background. They are part of the story of our childhood and our life that we actually carry with us. Uh, and I actually think it's the same in first century Israel. When Jesus tells um, the people uh, this story about a landowner and a vineyard. But you see, the cultural background for the Jews, their sort of music and movie catalogue, is actually the Old Testament scriptures. See, they would have heard these stories and these songs from the scriptures read to them uh, from when they were children. So their minds would actually be full of a whole catalogue of different stories and images that actually explain to them um, about who God is and about the way that God deals with his nation Israel. So, in this story, when Jesus starts talking about a parable, I think their minds would immediately go to a song. And it's a song um, from the prophet Isaiah. And I want to start today by reading that song for you. It's from Isaiah chapter 5. It'll come up on the screen be, uh, behind us. But as I read it, I just want you to think, what are the images uh, that uh, are in this song? And what do these images tell us about God and about the nation of Israel? Let me just read from verse 1. I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest uh, vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you, dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, 
judge between me and my vineyard. What more could, I, could have been done for my vineyard than I have already done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah 5 is a song about God's love for his nation Israel. And in it, we have this image of Israel as a vineyard. Yahweh, uh, Israel's God, prepares the vineyard. He finds a place where the soil is good. He clears the area of rocks. He plants the best vines. He builds a watchtower. He builds a fence to protect the vineyard. See, here we have a picture of God uh, who does everything to ensure that the vineyard thrives and produces excellent fruit. But what do we see? We see that the vineyard does not produce the good fruit that God expects. When God goes and looks for the fruit, he's deeply disappointed. Instead of good fruit, he finds only bad. So the question is, what is it that God's looking for? What is the fruit that this song is talking about? If we look down at the end of the song in verse 7, it tells us that God searched for justice but found only bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard only distress. And these two concepts, the concepts of justice and righteousness are really key to who Israel were called to be as God's people in the Old Testament. Justice is based on the idea that all people are created in the image of God. And because of that, they're equal before God and therefore have a right to be treated with dignity and fairness by other people, no matter who they are. And righteousness has two aspects. It refers firstly to a right relationship with God. That is, a relationship with God where God is with his people, but where his people are responding to God in the appropriate way as the ruler and creator of the universe. But the second aspect of righteousness is about right relationships with other people. And here it's very similar to justice. It's about, still about treating others as the image of God, with the dignity that they deserve. It's about living in peace with others, not doing things which will hurt others and um, seeking forgiveness when hurt has been caused. So this is what Israel were to be characterised. They were to be characterised by righteousness and justice. But when God comes to observe them, he finds the opposite. He finds conflict... He finds inequality and he finds distress. This is not the nation that Israel were called to be. So we read that God makes a decision that he is going to destroy his vineyard. 
We read in verse 5, I will take away its hedge. I will break down its wall. I will make it a wasteland. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. See, what God's doing is he's actually taking away all those things that protect the vineyard. And in doing so, he's going to bring judgment on that nation. And what we read through the rest of the um, book of Isaiah is really a story about how God is going to uh, bring that judgment on Israel, but also how he's going to deliver them from that judgment. So when Jesus talks about a vineyard to his listeners in first century Israel, the image of this desolate vineyard is the one that should immediately come to their minds. See, Jesus is taking this image from Isaiah and all the ideas that come along with it, and he adds to that story. But what he's going to do is he's going to point that story directly at those around him. This is like dropping a grenade in a crowded room. The results are going to be explosive. This is not a meek and mild Jesus. His words are sharp and they're aimed directly at his listeners. They're actually meant to be really shocking and they're designed to cause both his first century listeners but also us to sit up, take note and listen. So let's have a look at that parable from Matthew 21. The story itself is pretty straightforward, isn't it? A man plants a vineyard. He does all the work to prepare and protect that vineyard and then he rents the vineyard out to some tenants who are expected at the appropriate time, at harvest time, to give him an agreed percentage of the harvest. But the tenants had, have other ideas. They hatch a plan that, well, if we just kill all the messengers, then we'll be able to keep it all for ourselves. Uh, and that's what they do. He sends messenger after messenger whom they beat and kill, and he eventually goes so far as sending his own son, whom the tenants also kill. And Jesus ends this story with almost a rhetorical question. What will the owner do to the tenants? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Well, he's going to bring judgment on those tenants. It's actually one of those parables where I think it's really clear who's who in the parable. The landowner is God. Uh, The vineyard is God's people, Israel. The tenants are those people who are entrusted to look after his people. In this case, the chief priests and the Pharisees. The servants are the prophets that have been sent to warn Israel. And finally, the son is Jesus, the ultimate messenger. And I want to explore this parable today by looking at what it tells us, firstly, about God. Secondly, what it tells us about people, including ourselves. And thirdly, what it tells us about Jesus. So let's start with God. And I really want to just highlight three things that I think this story shows us about God. And the first thing we see is that God has great love and care for his people. So we read, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it. He dug a winepress and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. See, notice it's, it's exactly the same as in Isaiah 5. It's God who does all that initial work uh, in the relationship. It's he who provides... Uh, the things that the tenants need 
to be successful. This is like a gift to them. Yes, there's an obligation there, but it's, it's, it's given to them. He builds the wine press so that they can produce the wine. He builds the watchtower so the vineyard can be protected. And what we see is that God is a God who loves his people. He provides everything they need. He's a God who provides not only their physical needs, but he actually provides instructions. He provides guidance about how best to maintain that relationship with him. He doesn't expect his people to do it alone, but he sets his relationship up in such a way that it gives it every chance of succeeding. So that's the first thing. The second thing to note about God is that he trusts people and he actually gives responsibility to other people to share in his rule. Now, when we think about this, I think it's really crucial that we hold on to the fact that God is sovereign. That means that God is in control of all things that happen uh, on the earth uh, and, um, and he's, he is orchestrating all things according to his plan. But the picture of God in the Bible is not one of a micromanager and the picture of humans that we see in the Bible is not one of robots. Um, but rather, we get a picture where... God gives responsibility uh, to humans and he gives them freedom to follow him and make decisions. And this picture of a vineyard is a really helpful one because I think it highlights the way that God gives responsibility to leadership, uh, for leadership over to humans. In this case, God has entrusted his nation Israel to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he expects them to look after his people. You see, we'll see that one of the issues with the chief priests and Pharisees is that they didn't actually continue to seek the will of God in the way that they looked after God's people, but instead they became self-interested and insular. They were more concerned with looking after their own good uh, than that of the people. Because... When God gives privilege to others to share in his rule, he also has an expectation that his people will continue to depend on him. They will continue to look for him for everything and will continue to lead others in love and service for him. So we've seen that God uh, has great love and care for his people. We've seen that God actually places great trust in his people. But the third thing we see is that God is actually very patient when it comes to judgment. And I think when we read this story, it's actually really easy to jump down to verse 41. You know, when uh, the disciples um, respond that, of course, God's going to judge those people. But I think to do that misses actually half of the story. See, verses 34 to 36, the owner goes through numerous servants to try and maintain that relationship with the, uh, with the tenants and collect the rent. He provides many warnings which go unheeded. And the parable is, is actually a reflection of um, the Old Testament when God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call out Israel on their lack of devotion and to call Israel back into relationship with him. See, God doesn't just stop at sending messages. He actually goes all the way. He sends his own son to warn the tenants and to collect 
what he's owed. And just as the just as the owner is committed to the vineyard, God is committed to Israel. He's giving them every opportunity to repent. And in the end, we discover that, yes, he will indeed kick those tenants out. But after that, he actually remains committed to his vineyard, to having a people who will follow him. God replaces the tenants with others who are going to produce fruit. All the actions of the landowner here give us a picture of God who wants the relationship with Israel to work. God is totally committed to having a people he loves and who love him in return. And he will go to all lengths to ensure that this works. So I just want to stop now and I want to ask you, is this the picture of God that you have? I think we often tend towards extremes when we think about God. We either view God as harsh and uncompromising, like that strict disciplinarian who's really out there to call us out on all the bad stuff that we do. Or the other option is that we actually view God as absent and disinterested, really having no concern for the everyday aspects of our lives. And I think this parable presents a very different view of God. The God of the Bible loves you and has gone to extreme lengths to ensure that his relationship with you works. So we've seen that God is a God who uh, has great love and care for his people, puts great trust in his people and is patient in judgment. But what does this parable tell us about people? And as we read through the parable uh, and consider the tenant's actions, it's really a bit like an episode of one of those things like Today, Tonight or The World's Worst Tenants, isn't it? Like, you know, those ones that totally destroy the house, leave rubbish everywhere, have the pit bull out the front um, barking at the fence so that the people can't come and collect the rent or inspect the house. Um, It's actually... um, sounds like such an exaggeration, such a hyperbole. Um, it's, it's the worst you can possibly imagine. It's so far over the top. And I think Jesus is doing this to make a point. It seems totally excessive, doesn't it? Um, until we read the second last verse of the passage, when we read that the chief priests and Pharisees knew that Jesus was talking about them and went and did exactly the same thing that he was predicting that they would. And although Jesus is directing this story at the Jewish leaders, Matthew has included it in his account about Jesus for our benefit. This means that it has something to say to us and it's relevant to us. And one of the reasons I think it's so relevant is because of the warning that Jesus puts that God will indeed take that responsibility for leading his people away from the chief priests and the Pharisees and give it to a nation that will produce good fruit. God wants his church to be people who produce good fruit. 
And the tenants here um, provide a really helpful picture, I think, about what sin is. We often tend to think of sin in primarily a moral framework. You know, there's good stuff that we do uh, and there's bad stuff that we shouldn't do, but generally, you know, if the good stuff we do outweighs the bad stuff, we're probably going to be okay. Um, But, you know, the Bible actually has a much deeper view of sin than that. See, the Bible views sin as primarily about a broken relationship with God. And it's this broken relationship with God that actually causes all other relationships in our world to be fractured as well. Sin is about taking all the good things that God has provided to us and cutting God out of the picture. It's about taking that rule that we talked about before that God has entrusted to us and deciding to go it alone rather than to continue to depend on God. In the parable of the tenants, they think they have the right to take all the good things that the owner has provided to them without maintaining a relationship with the owner. And when the owner sends his servants for a percentage of the harvest, they beat and kill the servants and eventually the son. They then exert their own rule over the vineyard without any reference to the owner, without any desire to maintain a relationship with the owner. And as we think about that for ourselves, I think it's really easy to get drawn into that idea that sin is primarily about right and wrong. The result of this is that we actually don't work towards... We we work towards trying to do the right thing and trying to minimise the wrong stuff in our lives, but it actually doesn't get to the root of the problem. The heart of the problem is that our relationship with God needs to be restored. And I think the devil uses this type of thinking to try and shift us away from addressing our relationship with God and keep us stuck in an endless cycle of just trying to do better. Whereas this parable is actually calling us to examine our relationship with God and if it's lacking, come back to him first. So we've seen... um, about what it talks about people. And we've seen uh, what it says about God, the parable. But in the end, I think this parable is actually all about Jesus. See, Jesus puts himself smack bang in the centre of the story. And in doing so, he's going to force us to consider his claims. Jesus is the one and only son that the Father sends to the tenants as the final warning. Jesus is the one whom the tenants reject and kill, thinking that in doing so it will allow them to have control of that vineyard, which we've seen is the nation Israel. And to help his listeners understand his role in the story, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. And I'm just going to read it uh, as he quoted uh, in Matthew 21 from verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? You know, he's appealing to their learning and their history. He goes on. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, uh, like a lot of Aussies, um, me and my family have spent a lot of time at the beach over the last few weeks. Uh, and uh, one of the things we've observed is the building of sandcastles. I was having a dinner with a friend last night and he'd, he'd taken a bunch of overseas students uh, to the beach. Uh, and one of the key things that they did together was they had a, a sandcastle building competition because that's a pretty Aussie thing to do. Um, but you know one of the things I noticed about sandcastles is um, where you build the sandcastle is really important, isn't it? So if you build the sandcastle too close to the waves, waves are just going to come, destroy, you're going to have kids crying and upset and so forth. If you go back too far and build it in that sandy area, which, which is all dry, it's got no structure, is it? The, the, you, you try and push it all together, it just falls flat again. See, the foundation where you build that sandcastle is really important. And it's the same with anything. The foundation of anything that you build is actually going to be crucial to the success of the building. See, the cornerstone that Jesus is talking about here is the foundation stone for a building. It's what gives everything else in the building its stability and structure. Now, as Jesus was teaching, he was teaching in the temple courts. Now, the temple was probably, uh, apart from Herod's um, palace, was probably the most uh, extravagant building in Jerusalem at the time, so it would have had massive, big stones. And the cornerstone would have been the biggest. So as the listeners of Jesus come into the temple, they would have a, a, a really visual reminder about what the cornerstone is like. Uh, and... Jesus is using this image to actually tell us about himself. And I just want to um, look at three things which Jesus tells us about himself when he refers to himself as the cornerstone. And the first thing he says is that he will be rejected. The stone the builders have rejected, the stone that the builders didn't think was worthy to be a foundation, uh, has become the cornerstone. Jesus is predicting a time when he will be arrested. He will be deserted by all his disciples. He will face trial and he will eventually be executed on a cross. And it's really easy uh, as we read this parable uh, to actually distance ourselves from the actions of the Pharisees. Um. Oh, sorry, distance our actions from the tenants. Because to say that the tenants are the chief priests and the Pharisees is correct. But that actually doesn't go far enough, does it? To stop there forgets that even Jesus' closest friends rejected him when he was crucified. Jesus went to the cross alone. So we are not innocent in this regard. We too are guilty of rejecting Jesus. I don't know if you know the song, um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a song that I'm sure we sing quite regularly here. Um, the second verse captures this really brilliantly. It says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Friends, we need to own that. We need to own the fact that we have rejected Jesus uh, and uh, we are the reason why Jesus had to hang on that cross and be crucified. So that's the first thing that Jesus tells us in referring to himself as the cornerstone. But the second thing is, is that he will actually become the foundation for God's people. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's God's plan that in the very rejection of Jesus, that he will become the foundation for a relationship with God. When Jesus hung on that cross in Calvary, he took God's punishment for our sin and our rejection of him. And Jesus' death and sacrifice in our place is now the foundation for our relationship with God. Jesus is saying that his life, his death and his resurrection are going to become the central point for all humanity. This is the point in which God's plan for salvation, God's plan that to dwell and have a people that he can dwell with forever reaches its climax. This is the point that it all hinges on. And that really leads us to the third thing that Jesus is saying. And that is that Jesus' life demands a response. Because if we read it, there's a really stark warning here, isn't there? Look at verse 44. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is saying that anyone who rejects him will likewise be rejected and destroyed. So this is not leaving any grey area. See, there's no third option here. It's either you accept that Jesus has become the foundation for faith in God, or you reject him. Jesus does not give you the option of sitting on the fence. Now, if this seems harsh, um, can I just encourage you Uh, to continue to wrestle with that uh, and read the Bible. Read about all the extraordinary lengths that God has gone to to demonstrate his love for you and to bring you back into relationship with himself through sending his own son. So I just want to finish today by highlighting a couple of different areas, different ways in which I think we're, we're called to respond to this parable. And I want to start by asking, personally, how are you responding to Jesus? Because as we've seen, the parable demands a response. Have you accepted that Jesus is God's son, sent to earth to die in your place and restore your relationship with God? Have you moved towards Jesus in faith? accepting everything that he has done for you. Um, if you've actually never made that step before, um, please let me encourage you to think about doing that tonight. Um, talk with uh, someone who might have brought you along. Come and have a chat to myself or Mark or one of the leaders that you see up here. Um, they'd be love to talk to you about this. 
But for those who have made that step, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, I think this parable is calling, us, calling on us to bear fruit. Uh, God doesn't just want a bunch of vines that look nice, have good leaves, but don't actually produce any fruit. God calls for a, an abundant harvest. What's the fruit that, G, that, that he's expecting? Well, I think it's the same thing that we saw in Isaiah 5. God wants his people to be marked by justice and righteousness. Remember, justice is that idea that all people are created in the image of God and should be treated equally and with respect. And righteousness is, he wants people who are pursuing a right relationship with him and pursuing harmonious relationships with those we live with. I think these two themes are actually best summarised by Jesus when he's actually asked about what the greatest commandment is. And the answer he gives to his disciples is, we read in Mark chapter 12, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and with all your strength. Uh, The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. This is the fruit the Christian community is called to produce. This is the fruit that should mark the church. Love for God and love for each other. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life at the moment, um, but I do believe that if you've taken that step of putting your faith in Jesus, then God has given you his spirit. So... Let me encourage you this week as you continue to read God's word, as you pray, as you reflect on this message, that you will indeed listen to his spirit, that you will allow his spirit to continue to highlight the areas of, the life, of your life that you need to change and that you will listen to his spirit and allow God to change you. Our friends, why don't we pray together? Oh, Father, we are um, yeah, so amazed at, at your goodness to us, uh, so amazed at your day-to-day provision to us, uh, so amazed at the, the lengths that you go to in order to bring us back into relationship with you. But Father, we confess, um, yeah, we so often turn our back on you. Father, like those tenants, we... We reject your rule over our lives and we want to do it ourselves. And so, Father, we're sorry for that. Um, Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to die in our place to bring us back to you. And, Father, we pray that uh, your spirit would, would work deeply in our lives, would work in the life of this church here in Wollongong, uh, that we would be, we would bear fruit in your name, that we would be a people who are characterised by justice and righteousness, that we would be a people that are marked by love for you and love for others. Amen.